I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 44, Dawn and the Big Sleepover. We are also very excited to welcome one of the hosts of the Bloom Saloon, a Judy Bloom book club. Welcome, Jody. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> Jody is a graphic designer and creative director by day, and by night she co-hosts, edits, and produces the Bloom Saloon. It just occurred to me how like similar in uh, structure and pacing Bloom Saloon and Babysitter's Club are. I feel like I'm going to have a lot of weird <laughs> verbal trip ups today, but I think it'll be worth it. Oh, just the words? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jody, we're so happy you're Yay. here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. For me, it's also not unlike a sleepover as it is 11 p.m. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so. You right are a trooper. Yeah, yeah she's yeah. young. She's though. also young, though. She's ten years younger than us. She's it's gonna fine. go see Dead Mouse <laughs> after this. <laughs> I could be far younger. Yeah. Okay. Remind, so. me, remind me of everyone's ages. <laughs> so I think you and me and Anne are. You're a seventy-eighter, also, Jody. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So we're all the same age, and Emily's exactly ten years younger than us. All right. Yeah. So she represents all the millennials, and we're here with the. Well, Young Gen Xers. Just getting started in life. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Regular listeners may have heard uh, me and Anne on the Bloom Saloons wrap-up episode about starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. And so we we joined Jody and her co-host, Allison, one host down. And then today we have just Jody. We're one host down from the Bloom Saloon. But we're very happy to welcome you. And you get to meet Emily and sit up here. and. Talk about Dawn's grand scheme. Can I just tell y'all that uh, your episode when you came on our show was a fan favorite? Oh, was it? Huge oh, hit. Nice. Huge hit. Yes. <laughs> oh, really, so got a, really got a bump there. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> always, always happy to discuss Judy. We'll, we'll talk more about it. Mm -hmm. So should we, you know, just hop into our one sentence summaries? You guys ready? Let's do yeah. it. Okay. Here's mine. Anna Martin should receive a Pulitzer Prize for incorporating pen pals, a Zuni tribe, a fire, and a sleepover into one BSC book. <laughs> wow. Uh, and both you and I are yeah. very true sounds, to form. Sounds ridiculous, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Today, and like not giving summaries that are about the plot at all. Okay, so mine is Don doesn't know what a free throw is. <laughs> yeah. We can creep that in with ice cream cone. <laughs> it's just more, more evidence that Anna Martin thinks people from California don't know anything about anything. Um, okay. Mine is tons of kids, a disaster, a social issue, continually working, didactics and being a good person. This might be a perfect BSC book. Oh, that's my take. Okay. I just realized mine is two sentences. Sorry. That's okay. It's fine. You don't have to follow directions. You're a guest. <laughs> <laughs> Shavoom shaloom. 
Don is on the horns of a dilemma, but manages to make fundraising as complicated and self-celebratory as possible, and hence saves the Zuni pen pals with the necessities of chocolate sauce and deviled ham. <laughs> oh, that's actually that's Very a really good, good summary. Very, Very good. good. Yes. Wait, y'all, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Anna Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> I'm Jody Worthington. I'm a nostalgia obsessed. I'm nostalgia obsessed. I laugh a lot and I'm really good at hula hooping. Wait. Ooh. Ooh. Very intrigued. Emily's going to stop right here and ask you more about that. Go ahead, Emily. Well, first I have to plug the podcast, apparently, as me always makes me do this and I hate it. <laughs> if you want to learn more about us and how we know each other check out our prologue episode also rate and review us it really helps people find the podcast if you have any questions comments or commentary about anything bsc related drop us a line at stuck at gmail.com that's a real email address you can also support us on patreon at patreon.com slash stuck in stonybrook <laughs> Thank you to our new patrons also, Rachel Whalen, Robin <laughs> Garabidian, and the mononymous Charles. Welcome. Yay, pizza toast to the three of you. Thank you. Ooh. That's exciting. That's exciting. I can pay my pay my mortgage this month, maybe. You can you can buy candy. That's what Anne. Oh yeah, I can buy candy. On, let's be honest. <laughs> maybe that's true. Okay, so Jody, are you ready to answer some hard hitting questions about yourself and the podcast? Always. First, tell me about the podcast and how it started and why Judy Bloom? Uh, the podcast. So my co-host Allison and I have been doing it for about four and a half years now. Um, we started out by just wanting to do a podcast. <laughs> no topic chosen. Um, we wrote a long list and the top of our list were Judy Bloom books or cults. And we realized, oh, there's already a few cult podcasts out there, but no one's doing Judy Bloom. How is that possible? And I, like I'm sure all of you, have always been a Bloomhead. Um, I've even been, you know, even before the podcast, I had been picking up her books and rereading and checking out the ones that I somehow had missed before. So she's always been on my mind. And I feel like I've never really been able to talk to her or talk talk to her or talk about her to anyone else because no one's really no one's really really reading YA these days are they just kidding <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah we we decided to put this little podcast podcast together reread all her books talk about them and talk to our listeners which is one of my favorite parts yeah through like all your listener feedback is there anything interesting that people have like told you guys about or like a common theme when people write to you about um certain certain books you've read yeah i would say most people have just the softest spot in their hearts for are you there god it's me margaret it was everyone's kind of puberty starter book it is one that they just cherish and love and it really holds up it's such a good one a lot of similar stories about <laughs> sixth graders finding wifey in their parents' <laughs> bookshelves and being like, oh, Judy Bloom, I haven't seen this one, and uh, being traumatized. <laughs> a lot of people passing forever back and forth 
in oh, school, yeah. you know, dog earing the page about Ralph. Mm-hmm. So I think we've mm-hmm. uh, we've discovered that we all have this, you know, even though we might have very different childhoods, so many of us have very specific, similar mer- uh, memories, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about how in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, you know, in the period scene, she's trying to figure out how to use that contraption. But now I feel like if this book was modernized, like, would it be like a diva cup? And it'd be like, Ooh. what? Yeah, you yeah. Know? Well, so they did do an update. Somewhere along the way, they changed the menstrual belt to um, like a maxi pad. And they describe how, you know, you peel off the sticky part, you know, do all the stuff. Maybe it's with wings. I don't know. I don't think they did a third update with tampons or anything, but it might be time for a fourth, you know? Yeah. Like diva cup or the period panties. Mm -hmm. There's just so many options now. So many options. Um, And y'all know that there's a movie coming out, right? Yes. It's very Mm -hmm. exciting. When is it supposed to come out? Emily's Emily Uh, didn't know. Not quite sure. They haven't announced a date. You know, they've wrapped filming. They're in post-production. So I'm assuming the next few months and mm-hmm. we were kind of worried that they might fully bring it to modern day, which would still be cool because, you know, the Babysitter's Club series mm-hmm. pulled that off really well. Yeah. But there's so many nostalgic things about Margaret that we were hoping it would be a period piece. <laughs> <laughs> um, and from what we've heard, I, I have a bit of an insider scoop, which I can't really share too much yet. But from what we have heard, it will take place in like the vagueness of the 70s. So nice. not necessarily early or late 70s. It's just going to be kind of this um, like rose tinted era, awesome. which I think is really cool. Hmm, I like Very that. cool. Well, I hope that you have as as beautiful an experience as we have gotten to have so far with the Netflix Babysitter's Club adaptation. I think that oh. really exceeded all of our expectations by a lot. So I hope. Yeah. The Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret movie is similar. I think so. I mean, it's in great hands. Kelly Freeman Craig is directing. Thing. I mean, she did Edge of 17. I don't know if y'all saw that, but mm. it was great. And um, I just watched that all movie. The in the world. And Judy also is very hands-on. Did you? Yeah, on an airplane home from California, like a week ago. <laughs> so you watched oh, Parent Trap on the way to California and then Edge of 17 on the way back? Uh-huh. Yep. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I was just checking because you said you always watch parent, the Lindsay Lohan parent <laughs> trap when you're on the plane. So I was just making sure. That is such a good plane movie. <laughs> oh, so Jody, which which parent trap do you prefer? Why? You like the, Why are you doing this? The Lindsay Lohan version or the <laughs> Haley Mills version? I feel like there might be a wrong answer. I don't know. I, I love the original. <laughs> There's not a wrong answer, Jody. Well, she gave the right answer. She likes the original. But I do have a connection to the Lindsay Lohan one. It was the day. So I was living in London. And the day I was like going to the airport to go to college, my parents are driving me to the airport um, freshman year of college. And we turned the corner around our house. And we used to live near the um, Abbey Road uh, zebra crossing. (laughs) Zebra crossing. And... uh, we turn the corner and there's a film crew there and we're like, oh, what are they filming? And Lindsay Lohan oh, is just walking across. And so, yeah, like we saw, we saw it real time. That's pretty cool. And then I went to college. I love that. It's perfect. <laughs> the end. That's very excellent. 
Yeah. Great story. That's all there was. <laughs> so, Jody, we also, yeah, that's all there was. That's all you need. We also, of course, have to ask you about your relationship to the Babysitters Club. So, when what what you remember about reading them, which babysitter you are, tell us tell us what you like, what you don't like. Yeah. Oh, so much. Okay. So. When I was in fourth grade, I had been living in Holland for a few years, and I moved to New Orleans in the middle of fourth grade. And I remember my mom bringing home some books about American kids, <laughs> and one of them was Me and Katie the Pest. Did you ever read that Anna Martin book? Yeah, I remember yeah. that one. I loved it because it had horses in it, mm -hmm. had a bratty little sister, and so I was a Martin head at that point. <laughs> and then I picked up the first few Babysitter's Club books, obsessed, read through them all. And then I feel like from then on, and you 1978-ers, let me know if I'm wrong, but I feel like we were of the age where they were coming out real time. Oh, yeah. Like monthly. So yes. we were like waiting for the next ones. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if that was my imagination. No, that's definitely okay. true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then so, yeah, I would read them every month, you know, go to Walden Books or B. Dalton or what have you. And um, I think I love them so much because I, you know, coming from Holland, I went to an international school, like things were different there. And so I was really into books about American kids, American teens, so I could learn how to be American. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I didn't like children. I didn't like babysitting very much, but I loved bossing kids around, <laughs> <laughs> namely my little sister. And um, so I was really, really enchanted by all these young teens organizing things. Yeah. For kids, you know, doing events and pageants. And that was just aspirational. Yeah. They're so self-possessed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We actually got a listener letter just this past week. Um, from a woman named Christina who lives in Germany and grew up in Germany, but lived in the U.S. for just a few years when she was a kid and got into Babysitter's Club while she was here and then kept buying them, you know, much, much later, she said, you know, into adulthood because that like slice of a few years where she was living in the U.S., that was exactly it, what you said, like learning about how to be an American kid and having that window. And then it helps her feel connected to those years that she was there too. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. It's so true. I wonder how many other like kind of international kids were doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I thought it was more common, but you've seen the international covers of the BSC books, right? Yes. We've seen the UK ones. There's yeah, definitely. Yeah. The UK ones are horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> They're really bizarre looking. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, I, I know that there are others I've seen. We, I know, we know that, what did you find out, Emily, that the Italian ones came with tattoos or something or nails? Was it press on nails? I, I think that was just like a comment we got somewhere. Right. I don't know that I found that oh, out myself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's an Italian listener that told but me. But it was that. probably something oh, I was very, just, most excited so about. Associated it with you. <laughs> yeah. Also, I'm the only yes, one who cares. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I care. Yeah. No, there's some really interesting covers. Yeah. So who what's what? Who do you identify the most with? Who do you think of the, of the BSC members makes up Jody? So I always thought for years it was Claudia because, I mean, I just wanted to be her. <laughs> she, I loved her style. I tried to make Claudia outfits. I, you know, was a little artsy. I was always drawing, making things. 
Um, but then as I've gotten older and more conscious of who I really am, I have to admit I'm a bit of a Christie as well. And it's been a tough one because I hated Christie growing up. <laughs> so this is, um, you know, a bit of a reckoning for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's really common, Jody. To dislike the one that you're most like, because I also am a, a Christie and, you know, was clinging to being a Marianne for a very long time. Ah. Um, and I have some Marianne-like qualities and certainly did more when I was a child, but I'm definitely Christie. But I really like her now mm-hmm. as an adult. Like, I'm, I've enjoyed rereading her. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think the series helped us like her a bit more. Yeah, I feel like this book, I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm such a Mallory I'm really coming to terms with that, I feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like how they were like, oh, she's like really practical, but also creative. And I was like, oh, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Anne had a, you know, it was an e- easy match for her to be Japanese American and love candy and love art. So it was, you know, Claudia was always very simple, but you do, you're very, very practical. You've got a big, big Mallory component for sure. Mm hmm. Yeah. How are you with poetry? Actually, I don't like poetry really. So not my thing. Was, I think I feel like Mallory's Vanessa, little sister writes. Yeah, poetry. Vanessa was the Vanessa. poet. I was just remember. So Mallory wasn't so much of a poet. No, she, she was likes, just a reader. Yeah, and she likes to write and illustrate children's stories. That's right. That's yeah. right. Which Anne always did really well in like project picture book when we were in elementary and middle school. So mm, yeah. Just add another Mallory <laughs> together. on to me. Yeah. Why are you so mad about being Mallory? <laughs> I know she's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's, you know, I just feel like she seemed a little whiny at the beginning of the books, at the beginning of the series, I feel. But and plus they've like completely mm. cut her out of season two of with the Netflix. Let's show. not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they released the episode list and Jesse has an episode, but Mallory doesn't have an episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. I even relate more than Mallory now, just getting, you know, cut out of things mm-hmm. and stuff. How dare she? Oh, yeah. And like, what What have you been cut out of? Give us an example. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That's just how I feel. <laughs> All right. Should we talk about this book, everybody? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Indian Child Welfare Act. Go. Oh, well, no. Why don't we ask Jody like what her initial impressions were and like what did you notice in the book guest? Okay. <laughs> and come on. Yeah. That was my that was my uh, that was my transition into the book. Yeah. No. It's a very well, clever segue. Jody, what'd, you, what'd you notice? What'd you like? Very subtle. <laughs> this book was not what I was expecting. I hadn't actually read this one before. I think my last read my or my last book when I was a kid was the one before this the Stacy's emergency one mm. and wow. um so this one I hadn't read I had always seen the covers and I just always imagined it would be you know maybe like the whole eighth grade goes to like have a cool dance and maybe a slumber party after and there's boys and like mm-hmm. I don't know exciting stuff oh and, Jody's um, disappointed this really <laughs> Too much babysitting. Wasn't that? Yeah. I felt that the babysitter's personalities were also lacking a bit here. I didn't really get the sense of their personalities. They all just seemed interchangeable in what they were Mm. doing. 
Um, Dawn didn't even feel like Dawn to me. She just, um, I don't know. I just didn't feel a deep connection with anyone in this book. I agree. Yeah. So it is ghostwritten. Um, this is the first Peter Larangis book and he goes on to write many, 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 many of them, but it's the first from him. So that might be part of it. Um, He's just getting his feet wet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, so how many Dawn yeah. books have been ghostwritten? I think just this one and Dawn on the Coast. So That's far. it? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I think so. But I will say I loved um, the, like... Oh, sorry, Jody. No, and of course, Dawn and the Older Boy. Uh, that was a little nightmare of a book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> Go ahead, Jody. you were going to say. I just wanted to point out some things I did appreciate because I don't want to shit on this book at all. <laughs> But, you know, and I know we'll get into the Native American, American Indian, Indigenous American stuff. So I'm not even going to bring that up here. But um, what I really liked was uh, the extortion. Like these kids stealing their parents' stuff, selling it or trying to sell it. I thought that was hilarious. But I didn't like that nobody got in trouble. They're just like, ah, I'll buy it back from you. And there were no consequences. And I found myself um, wishing the parents would be a little more um, or, you know, wouldn't let them get off so easy. But that's, yeah, I think that's like the power like- of white guilt, right? Like <laughs> you can't punish your children for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For philanthropy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I also one of my main notes is I need to know how to play Spud. Yeah. What's Spud? I wasn't sure either. Usually when they introduce a game in a BSC book, they like, kind of teach you how mm-hmm. to play the game. And this is the first one where they didn't. And I, I don't know what Spud is either. Emily, do you? No, of course not. If you don't know what it is, I don't what? know what it is. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a game where players try to eliminate each other by catching and throwing an inflated and generally a softball. Oh, I was hoping it was going to be a potato. Well, yeah. So yeah. wait, is it just dodgeball? Yeah, it seems like it, except the photos I'm looking at, the, the ball's like smaller. Okay. Kind of. I mean, I could I could click on how to play Spud and I can read the instructions for you. But... No, I think it's better to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Christ. I am curious from listeners that grew up playing it. Like, I wonder if it's a regional thing. And I know you moved around. You mentioned Jody, but maybe just none of us lived in a Spud area. Oh, uh, no Spuds. Oh, I mean, there was a Tiger Eyes. Yeah, shout out. I was so excited. Ah. I was like, it's the perfect book I know. to have you on for. How could I even have left that out? That was the main thing I was going to say <laughs> was the Tiger Eyes tie in. Um, Marianne reading uh, Dawn's copy of Tiger Eyes and being really into it. And Dawn almost spoils who Mr. Mm-hmm. Ortiz is. Ooh, I I just spoiled that. <laughs> Uh, it's okay. It's okay. It's been, it's came out a little while ago. <laughs> uh-huh. And, um, and I do remember Anne frequently mentioning other books mm-hmm. throughout the oh, series, yeah. which I always appreciated. And I learned of new books through these books. So I hope a whole generation of BSC heads picked up Tiger Eyes because yeah, of this. Totally. Mm-hmm. We have, um, we have a bookshop, bookshop.org slash second Stony Brook. And we've been keeping track of all the books that are still at gmail.com. It's a new bookstore. <laughs> like it connects you to 
Yeah. <laughs> Connects you to a new bookstore. And we already have, you know, just 44 books in, we have something like 65 books that the BSE has nice. mentioned. And there's probably 10 more that we can't list because they're out of print because they're older. But, you know, she does mention at least two or three books every every episode. And it's always mentioned by the girls so that you're like, oh, John likes that book. Maybe I would like that book. I mean, it's very clever. Yeah. So good. And then, the, you know, I'm, I'm sure you like, you might pick apart why this specific book was mentioned in this context mm-hmm. and the tiger eyes. I mean, the obvious tie in is like New Mexico. A lot of it takes place mm-hmm. in New Mexico. Um, I was trying to think about any other Lions. I'm like lizards. Um, <laughs> murder. No, <laughs> I think it was purely locational. Yeah, <laughs> we have we struggle with yeah. the why did she do this question often <laughs> about a lot of things. Yeah. About a lot of things, like the cheerleaders for Christie's Crushers dressing up as the Three Stooges. Why? Like, why <laughs> would three eight year old girls in 1989 do that? No idea. You know. <laughs> like that um and did you want to give us just a quick rundown of the basic plot we're talking about parts of it already but we haven't gone over before you jump then then i promise we'll let emily talk about the indian child welfare act yeah so the elementary school in stony brook has pen pals it's like called pen pals across america is that what they call it um and then Mm -hmm. so all the kids at stony brook elementary have pen pals in mexico from the zuni tribe or the reservation there um, so they've been going, they've been writing of students there um, for, I don't know, it doesn't really say how long, but it seems like they have built up a relationship with these kids in this other school. And then they learn that there is a fire and their entire school burned down. And, yeah. which is like, I was like, geez, like, bummer. Yeah. I mean, the, really, the, the, then I started to think about, sad. yeah, then I started thinking about like how this ranks with um, like, getting shipwrecked and also that uh the the bus accident Mm, right on the way to the ski lodge yeah right Mm. right that's not not snowbound that's a later one no babysitter's winter vacation oh winter vacation that's right but i think a school burning down is it's kind of worse yeah right yeah but no one was hurt no one was hurt but then like in like within seconds don has this great idea of like putting together this fundraiser to help these kids. And then it turns into, you know, where a lot of babysitting and dealing with kids is involved (laughs) with all the babysitters. And they like uh, kind of go over the top with what they really need to do. (laughs) And it results in a big sleepover where lots of kids get toys for for prizes for fundraising. Mm -hmm. And then they send all the, all the stuff to, to New Mexico to help families and children there. Mm-hmm. And that's so inspiring to the local community that then other people in New Mexico donate enough money yeah. to rebuild the school completely. Oh, well, that's yeah. not quite I what mean, happens. Wow, Don. <laughs> slow no, no. slow cap, clap for Don. <laughs> it's so inspiring to the community that the federal government decides to give them disaster aid relief. Oh, right. <laughs> Only because Don organized yes. this fundraiser yeah. in Stony Brook and Yeah. There, this is like completely yeah, implausible for so yeah. many reasons to me. Like, <laughs> I know when I read the conclusion, I was like, "What? <laughs> like, no? Why? No. Why?" Yeah, it was good enough without that. 
Like if it exactly. was just helpful, they could have just been helpful. Right. They don't have to yeah. be literal saviors. <laughs> literal white saviors. Yeah. 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 <laughs> We've convinced the federal government and, to reverse their 300 year policy on yeah. like genocide. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> like the fuck? Yeah. Oh. Maybe this book was written to make up for how much Don sucked on the island. Can we stop talking about how much Dawn so sucks? I Claudia? thought it was written to no. <laughs> so upset. Always a Dawn, Jody. Um, I, I hate Dawn. She's the worst. <laughs> so I actually no, you don't. No, you don't. I don't. Do you really think she's bad in this one? I don't think she's bad in this one. I think she's kind of inspiring. She gets stuff done. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. The stuff that's bad in this book is not her fault. I'll say. No, it's like structural, giant. I mean, like she's yeah. doing a good thing. She's like, doing a, I don't like an eighth thing. She's doing what she knows is good. Yeah. As an eighth grader yeah. in a white suburban East Coast. Totally. American yeah. Town. And she's yeah. leveraging like these burgeoning actual relationships that the kids have with actual human children on the reservation in New Presumably. Mexico to like help. Well. You sort. I, I think they did a pretty nice job establishing that for a hundred plus page children's novel. Like there, there's mm-hmm. lots of okay. bits of their letters back and forth. How much money do you think they raised? <laughs> I needed to know. I hate when they don't tell numbers. I know <laughs> it really annoyed me. I was like, "What? Oh, You're not going to say?" I was like, "That's genius that they didn't put a number because then when we're reading this in 2021, we can just be it like, oh. inflation.' Yeah." So I just want to know a ballpark. Was it like yes, three thousand? <laughs> like wait, it was three thousand dollars. Like yeah, I was like, wait, is that the, is that it? <laughs> is that our guess? That was curious. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you okay. I was gonna say like, should we like what's the ballpark? Three to six thousand, six to ten, ten. You know what I mean? Like what are we? What are we I thinking? Mean, realistically, I think like three hundred fifty dollars <laughs> or something. <laughs> Like they're like collecting like change from children. Yeah, but Stony Brook is a really rich community. I I don't know. Living in a you know rich Bay Area city where you know school fundraisers can raise like fifty thousand dollars. I'm like obviously there's a lot. I was thinking more in the like eight to ten range because you have people mm-hmm. like Watson being like, oh, I'll buy my you know priceless cufflinks back, you know, and like. All of that. I was thinking it was probably like a legit amount of money. Yeah, but he buys them back for 15 bucks. Yeah. I know. Also, they're like, we used our babysitting money to pay for postage. I'm like, okay, that costs like a million dollars to send. First of all, all that stuff over there. No, they didn't use babysitting dollars. They're shipping. They took it out of the money they raised. It was from the... Yes. Yeah, Jody's right. yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... They had it. I mean, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Did. Yeah, man. I remember fact thinking, check. Oh, that's good that they didn't do that. Yeah, I think I you just read what you wanted they, to read. I remember it said because I was horrified that they took money out of <laughs> that, the right. money they raised, and then they sent what was left over. Mm-hmm. Is anyone checking? Okay. I believe you. <laughs> I can't find it, but I probably did just. I probably did just read what I wanted to read. <laughs> no, you're right. The postal costs came out of the money we collected. Yes. <laughs> I mean, not yet. Okay, so they spent all happened. their money <laughs> on mailing it. The postal system was not in trouble yet in 1991, so I probably Damn it. didn't cost as much as it would now. One of us should have done a deep now. dive on that. 
How much would it have cost to mail all that, like, shit from people's garages in 1991? (laughs) Here's 10 boxes of chocolate sauce and a leather French vest. I hope you raised $100,000 because it's going to cost you 50. (laughs) So I was thinking that maybe she wrote this or, or mapped this out for Peter Larangis to write because of feedback she'd gotten about the other because Indianness is the thing that has come up the most in our like social justice tallies from like Camp Mohawk and the different names of the cabins and stuff to like playing cowboys and Indians like there's been lots of things like that so far in the series and I felt like this was like an overcorrection to come Mm. back and say like oh no Native Americans exist now and they're actual people and you know, yes, we should be white saviors and help them after a disaster. But like, we we should also, you know, there's this part in the beginning where I forget which, is it a pike? Someone's like chastising someone else for being like, no, this is, you know. I think it's Mallory. It's Mallory. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course it is. Go Mal. You know, so. the triplets. Yeah. And, you know, getting them away from, you know, learning about real festivals and, getting them away from Mm -hmm. thinking that everybody who's Native American lives in a teepee. Yeah, like Indians are Mm -hmm. from India. You should know that by now, especially after three letters. Oh, oh, I have a theory. Okay, so before, you know, we were chatting for the podcast, Jody, I was saying how I think this whole book was inspired by Dances with Wolves because Dances with Wolves came out in 1990 and this book came out in 1991. And we know how big Dances with Wolves was as a, as a hit, as a cultural touchstone of, mm-hmm. of the 90s. And then I was thinking, well, you know, I don't know if that lines up because they probably had to write the book like earlier. I think there's I think Dances with Wolves came out in October, November or October, November 90. And, and I believe Dawn's Big Sleepover came out in April of 91. So that doesn't leave a lot of time there. But what if when Dances with Wolves came out, they're like, oh, people, this is like people are really into like Native Americans now. So they switched the school out to be the Zuni kids in New Mexico, whereas maybe it was another, they were pen pals somewhere else. I think you're onto something. It would be a quick search and replace, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. Because like- they don't really talk about like indigenous culture anywhere else except for the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my theory. I mean, there could also just be a third variable that caused both Dances with Wolves and Dawn (laughs) and the Big Sleepover. Just a groundswell of awareness and attention to Native American issues and white saviordom. Or that. I have a similar theory, Anne, about dinosaurs having their kind of cultural moment in this time, Mm. but we can get to that later. But I think, you know, yes, there are. It's so true that there's always like three things that come out that are kind of the same, like three movies about vampires or three movies about aliens. And um, yeah, we just got to find that third Native American um, cultural touch point. What was the third thing in the era of ants and a bug's life? B-movie. Which one? B-movie, the one with Seinfeld. (laughs) I don't remember that one. Damn. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) Man, that theory, you know what? I'm convinced, Jody. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> that was my counter test case. 
<laughs> thwarted. Now Jody's entire theory holds together. Yeah, like, it's since Esme, you love that. It's airtight. <laughs> Don't even try to test it. Okay, really though, Emily, I do want to know what you were going to say about the Indian Child Welfare, Welfare Act. Oh, I, it just struck me as really interesting the kind of parents' reaction in this book to the kids like being really concerned about their pen pals. Like, I think Dawn talks about it to I think her own mom and Marianne's dad, and they're like, "Yeah, I mean, bad stuff happens all the time." And mm-hmm. Dawn's like, "Well, but this is super sad. You know, all these kids have this really nice connection to these people, these other kids in a place that none of us have ever have ever been, and blah blah blah." And the fact that the parents were like, "Oh yeah, shit happens to everyone. Like, this isn't particularly sad," is really fucked up in light of like the actual plight of indigenous children mm-hmm. in the United States. Like, I mean, this was what 91 we're saying right the indian child welfare act wasn't passed until like 1978 and the last boarding schools for native american children didn't close until like the 90s like there would have still been at least one or two active boarding schools for native american children like when this book was written (laughs) and that Mm -hmm. like that there's a school on a reservation that fucking catches fire and is like gone like completely obliterated and that everyone's like, yeah, stuff happens. That's pretty shitty. And like, that's the end of the discourse around like what's shitty about it is just like, on, I guess on the one hand, really on point for the era, mm-hmm. but but like very troubling. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I that was really sat with me a lot when I was reading this book. Like there's nary a discussion of like, why might their school have burned down and like not our school, for example, like a little bit here and there, right? Like I think you're right that the identity politics of it and the like kind of representation that's happening are are in some sense a an attempt at kind of recuperating some earlier problems within erasure and invisibility mm-hmm. in the earlier books but like there's no a, no conversation or, at all around the kids school like maybe a little bit when people are like oh do kids who've lost their homes and their school need chocolate sauce and then it's like well Maybe they don't, but ultimately, like, anything helps, right? So that Mm -hmm. kind of, like, sort of starry-eyed approach to helping that's, like, Mm -hmm. anything helps and, you know, their school will be back and they'll be like us again or, or, or like, enough like us again where we won't feel guilty mailing them pendants and other such trivialities. It's just, like, Mm -hmm. ooh, that is not how we should talk about that then and certainly not how we should talk about it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually really liked that the adults reacted that way because I do think it is realistic and like the harshness of it was, I I thought kind of, you know, especially reading it now later was sort of brave. Like, I think that that's unfortunately how, you know, a lot of people react to the news and it's not usually how teenagers react to the news, which is why mm-hmm. I like working with them. Right. And so you see sort of the deep empathy that Dawn has and that the other babysitters have for and the like acknowledgement in hearing this story that these are real people um, as opposed to kind of the jaded adult response of like, we'll turn on the news and you'll hear about a disaster somewhere every five minutes. But I think it's more insidious than like a jaded adult response. Like it, Mm -hmm. it encapsulates. And I think it's a really good depiction of like a particular kind of like white ignorance. Right. That's totally that like, I don't, I, I can I am allowed to render this as something that just happens and it's unfortunate because I don't need to see like mm-hmm. what what makes this possible 
and the extent to which I'm a participant in what makes this possible and I benefit from it. Right. And, and so like, in that sense, it's a very like excellent portrayal of that phenomena, but it's like, come on, if like, you know, I, I think, I think I'm always tacking between, is it portraying a real phenomena in a way that's helpful or is it just like perpetuating the same logic that makes the existence of that phenomena endure. And mm-hmm. I don't know that like this portrayal of the parents like gets us to the point of like actually thinking about what makes a teenager empathetic, but not a white adult in Stony Brook Connecticut, for example. Right. Like mm-hmm. if, if there had been more kind of struggle between the parents and the kids, I think that actually would have been really meaningful. And we might think mm-hmm. about like, you know, what makes it what when you're young and you haven't lived in the through the same things as the parents have, like, why can you maybe be more empathetic or or feel more kind of affinity for or relationship to others that your parents can or cannot, especially when your parents are relatively privileged. Right. But like, that's not the plot of this book. <laughs> yeah. So so it's just like we're just taking for granted that like the whole understanding that the kids develop, even as they're sort of developing a budding you know, orientation towards philanthropy is that like, oh, I mean, bad stuff just happens sometimes and it's really sad. And But that's like, that's like not why that happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I thought that Richard's comment about, oh, well, their sprinklers must not have been working, you know, was just really offhanded. And also maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seemed like he's making assumptions about the infrastructure mm-hmm. of their buildings, like assuming they're shoddy, you know, you don't like, they could be you know, uh, top notch and like, you know, state of the art facilities, right. For all he knows. But I think he just kind of, um, it seems like he's got this idea in his head of like, well, they're probably poor. They probably Mm -hmm. don't have sprinklers. That's what happens, you know? Mm -hmm. And just that one little comment was really, really sat weirdly. I think Don noticed it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the fucked up thing is he's probably not wrong, but like that also doesn't jive with the ultimate conclusion. We've already like sort of made jokes about the the idea that like the federal government would distribute disaster aid after like some eighth graders run a fundraiser somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like but like it's so much more difficult for people on reservations to receive like FEMA funds, for example, in like the case of wildfire disasters or like hurricanes or whatever than people who don't live on reservations. And so that like that also is not in keeping with like the reality of kind of like um, the relationship between disaster and the reservation as this kind of site uh, that's like not quite citizen, but, you know, um, this occupying this other space. And so like, Mm -hmm. there's just so much that what to me felt like, obviously it's a children's book, but I was like, oh man, I I think this story in particular deserves being redone in light of kind of how we think about this stuff now and that there's like mm-hmm. so much more you could do with that disaster that's not just about like being kind to people who live elsewhere and more about like thinking about like how it is that my school doesn't burn down when someone else's does, right? Like we don't always mm-hmm. think about the fact that our school doesn't burn down as being related to the fact that other schools do burn down, but they are like in really kind of like complicated ways. And like, I, that would, I think be a really effectual, like very important story to, to think about or to learn. Yeah. Or to grapple with. 
Yeah, I think so often we have this reaction of like, oh, you're so close, but Mm -hmm. oh, I wish you had just went slightly this direction or slightly further. Yeah. 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 I was thinking a lot in this book, too, about philanthropy and like particularly how feminists talk about philanthropy. And there's like a bunch of different ways that feminist theorists think about like what philanthropy is and does and what it would mean to do philanthropy in a feminist way. And I think this like this idea that all help is good help is actually something that feminists are very, very critical of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, back to the kind of arbitrary, like silly conversation among the kids about like, well, do they need chocolate sauce if they don't, if they can't go to school? But it's like, well, that that actually is a chi- a children's version of a really real debate about like oh, yeah. whether all help is, whether any help at all is better than no help. And like, if it doesn't matter, if what kind of help matters and how far it matters. And so I thought it was kind of cute to see that debate being had on this like really small scale among kids and kind of kid language. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the two very small things I was thinking about while I was reading this book. Well, I, they don't seem small to me. <laughs> that, was, that was a joke. That was oh, a joke. Sorry. Yeah. It's later where you are, but I'm also tired. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, well, it does tell nicely with, with my corner because I took a little bit of a dive into the altruism literature. Mm. Um, so closely related to philanthropy. But w- what you were just talking about with feminist theories of philanthropy r- reminds me of like, so in Girl Scouts, there's very, you know, obviously giving and, and volunteering and being in community and help, being helpful is a big part of it. But there's a huge focus on not just going in and providing help that you think you need to provide, but like talking to the people about even if it's an issue that's not directly helping people, right? Like say it's like helping an ecosystem, making sure you're talking to people that actually know what is needed and like don't just go to the beach and pick up trash, like talk about what's most important. Maybe there's invasive plants there that have to be, you know, like doing your research so that you're not kind of diving in and giving help that isn't wanted or isn't the most important. Um, And that seems like it comes right out of what you were just talking about, Emily, in terms of what help is good help. And yeah. Yeah. And I I think too, like when you dig into the different feminist traditions and ways of rendering these questions and conversations, there's also a concern with ways in which certain modes of philanthropy or helping might just reinscribe the kind of structural mm-hmm. issues that facilitate the, the difference in, you know, access to like the political process or basic material resources to begin with. And so this question mm-hmm. of not only like what help is good help, but like what what modes of help actually do more harm in the long run. Right. So the question right. of kind of immediate material response versus like what would actually lead to like a greater kind of uh, or like be more geared toward a a more substantive or robust notion of justice in the long run Um, and so like how do you square the kind of the needs of the immediate moment with like what actually are who's the we of concern of moral concern and then what actually are our you know long-term justice-oriented goals and like how do we reach those so I thought like the question of like, well, do these kids who don't have a school need chocolate sauce is actually like a really interesting like introduction to that conversation. But again, like doesn't quite get there yeah. to that second so close. bit. So close. <laughs> so close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as somebody that works with teenagers, I'm constantly impressed by the the altruism of teenagers and the empathy of teenagers. And we see this, you know, we can see this 
on a national and global scale with people like Emma Gonzalez and Greta Thunberg and, you know, um, all kinds of youth activists around and um, getting particularly passionate about issues that are important to them. But I think we really see that on display in this book. And I, I liked, again, that contrast while dark in the ways that you emphasized, Emily, between how the adults responded and how the, the teens and then in turn the children inspired by the teens or egged on by the teens respond was really, really great. So I was thinking a lot about social psychology and the study of altruism, which looking at altruism in children goes back to like the early 1900s. There's like child training manuals about how to teach your children sympathy so that they can be more altruistic later in life. But the, the core of most, not, not all, because there's some debate, but a lot of altruism research is focused on the empathy altruism hypothesis, which is basic, you know, exactly what it sounds like when you have more empathy for somebody, you're more likely to be giving an altruistic and non-selfish in your reach out, reaching out to them. Um, and so I thought that that was pretty well portrayed in this, right? They'd talked, they'd gotten to know these kids through three or four letters. They'd learned about their lives and they were particularly worried about them because of those connections. And we also see Dawn being, before the disaster happens, being envious that they don't have this program at the middle school and that she doesn't get to correspond with somebody and wanting to learn more. So I think you can kind of see hints of, you know, maybe Dawn's future in the Peace Corps, which can be problematic in its own way. Don't start, Emily, but... I like. I think that you can see that thread of of Dawn there, and I just looked at a few kind of more recent studies because a lot of the altruism research happened like 50s through the 80s. But uh, there was a study in Turkey um, just from this past July that was published that showed that um, with um, Adil Tumor and colleagues, they measured. Um, they had a standardized measure of empathic tendencies, like how likely are you to feel empathy for other people and to kind of have smaller versions of emotions that other people are showing. And people and teenagers specifically who had higher empathic tendencies were more altruistic, were more giving in their lives and were responded both in ways that they had shown altruism and also in prompts that they would, you know, would they would you help a person in this scenario? And they were more likely to say yes. So you can kind of see that connection there, which I thought was interesting because it's still being, you know, that's a very recent study. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this was something that people are still wondering about. And I always, I often think about how we can harness that because it's something that does sadly go down um, in the 20s and 30s. People get sort of more, we think about teenagers as being self-obsessed, but they're actually, they're self-obsessed and other obsessed. Like they're, they're ready just to help. Obsessed. Then, yeah, they're just obsessed. Um, and there's a lot of good, passionate energy there that I think we, we don't harness as effectively as we could as a society. So yeah, I'm curious, like, like how much I, I can totally see how when you're younger, you have more empathy and in your 20s and 30s and beyond, it gets to be less, mm-hmm. even if you still have it, it just isn't you're not as in touch with it. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I mean, is it like capitalism? It's like, I can see for myself yes. how I'm like, oh, like, always. oh man, I got to make more money because, oh geez, I got to, you know, buy these things or I need to like support myself. Like you're too busy thinking about the rat race to really, you know, kind of nurture that, that empathy that maybe you did have before. I, I think that that's definitely part of it. I also think that, you know, part of empathy is, is as I mentioned, like feeling the emotions of the other person. 
And that can get really exhausting. So I know we, you know, we joke about it a lot on the podcast. And you guys ask me if I'm crying a lot because mm-hmm. I, I will cry at various parts of these BSC books. But I think that 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 is really tiring and it's hard to live a life if you're kind of that hard on the sleeve all the time. And so I think a lot of us, as we grow older, learn ways to sort of guard our emotional energy a little bit. And there are pros or and cons we're just tired all the time. <laughs> right. That too. <laughs> Yeah. I wonder if that's why as you get older, you see a lot more um, like at least from you see a lot more of these fundraising and like uh, philanthropy events that have something else tied to it, like prizes or like a big fancy gala. Mm -hmm. And maybe your photo gets taken and you're in the society pages, Mm -hmm. you know, I Mm -hmm. like the adult version of Don's sleepover. Exactly. (laughs) So I see so much of Don's sleepover exactly as like the mini version of what, uh, you know, socialites will be doing Mm -hmm. uh, 20 Mm -hmm. years down the line. And so it's like they're getting started on a weird path to um, helping others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) they could they could help. I mean, what about just donating money directly? Yeah. Like, fuck the sleepover. Fuck the pizzas. Yeah. 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 It makes me think of Tahani in The Good Place, actually, as you were talking, Jenny. Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I found it a little weird how the kids were rewarded with, like, toys, Mm -hmm. like, given to them by the toy store. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't the toy store donate toys to the kids who lost their home? That's why it's weird. I was like, why isn't this being donated? Like, why didn't they go around to like shops in Stony Brook? Or like what you know, it's it's like uh-huh. they get new toys, but these kids and they gave well, they down, need new toys because like, they gave all their old toys their to the other kids. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I, for the I, Stony Brook kids, it's like no skin off their nose. They don't yeah. give a shit about parting with dad's old shoes or right. like this old He-Man you haven't touched in three years. You know, they're getting so, they're getting a prize. I have yeah. a question for you all on okay. this point. What do we make of the fact that the open-ended fundraising was just like whatever the kids want to do? And that mm-hmm. like we don't really hear what they, they did really <laughs> there's well, we just heard about like madame Laveau. yeah we heard a couple but <laughs> what and the big party with goober mansfield but yeah. like what how is that a fundraiser first of all <laughs> second of all <laughs> yeah i i don't know i think they pulled a lot of things together pretty quickly i think i think probably the kids on the rich side of town just asked for donations and then mm-hmm. uh, you know kids in the the very poor upper middle class neighborhood where most of the babysitters live did these other gimmicks. We're like, I don't know. I'll donate, but I want to see a magic show. <laughs> yeah. I think that because part of it is also community building, right? I, like I'm, I'm pretty far on the other side from you all yet. Yeah, like, yes, if the maximum amount of aid to the reservation would be just to put all of the effort and all of those donations forward. And um, I don't know that that's the only point. And I also know that this happens all the time with fundraisers where there are incentives to, you know, raise the most. And so it seems to work. Like I'm guessing the the money came out in the wash in terms of motivating more kids who maybe are lower on that empathy, especially because younger kids aren't as high as teens who maybe wouldn't have been as interested in doing it. And then they're like, oh, well, I want to go to the sleepover. So then they start getting getting their motor running and getting more invested. And then 
the actual altruism gets reinforced by their community because they're they are raising this money for a good cause. I mean, the, the point, you know, if the point of the book was just like, let's get the maximum dollar amount, it would be a pretty short book. <laughs> A very boring book. Yeah. I just had flashbacks of do you did you do those fundraisers in school where maybe you did like a like a 5k and if you got the sponsors then you could choose your prize out of this catalog mm-hmm. and you could get a clock radio or like yeah ma- we did <laughs> a magazine clock radio we did magazine subscriptions in middle school and we got these oh. things called weebles that were like not weebles the children's toy or they're called weeples we people or something they were basically like a pom pom with eyes and feet. What? And like the more you got, you won more of them. And we, Anne and I and our two friends named Michelle won the most in the school and we got a limo ride. We got to go what? downtown in a limo and go out to lunch. Oh my God. And we were really motivated. Limos were the best hey, in 1990. Hey. It was all for a good cause, okay? Yeah. You guys, this is exactly what we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> that was really common. And that was literally the same year yep. that this book came oh, out. Oh, amazing. So. Yeah. Why didn't Don get a limo? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I want to tell you one more thing, two more things about the altruism research, and then my corner will be done and we can transition to pop culture. One is a finding that's been replicated a bunch of times. Music and Wilson, 2003. Volunteering leads to better physical health lower rates of depression, greater well-being. Um, so if, you know, if you, if the pizza and the toy, new toy doesn't motivate you, um, long-term doing more volunteering in your life is better for your mental health and your physical health, apparently. And then I have questions about that study. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. But I think Anne's question about like, is it capitalism? Is you you treated glibly, but I think is there's really I didn't like, treat it glibly. I just gave <laughs> that was your answer, and then I just gave another answer. You said yeah, said sure, probably. I guess probably, and but whatever. I said and. Uh, <laughs> I was being dialectical. Okay, go on. But and, um, <laughs> yes, and like, what does volunteering mean? You mean how did they define it in the study? Yeah, but also like, like, what does it mean socially in the broader in a broader sense, and like, how does that relate to kind of how we're already positioned and what other demands are made of us as like members of a particular society who aspire towards some sort of like socially accepted notion of what a good life is, like all that mm-hmm. shit. Yeah, I mean, so you know, psychologists, we don't talk about that stuff. Ugh, um, you know what? So- all right. So it's defined very empirically. It's like I would just like all of our week. listeners to know that I am teaching four days a week again. So if you thought the podcasts were going to be fun for forever, that's over. <laughs> and this is how it's going to be from now on. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I'm not sure which question you really want me to answer because you asked like 13 in that sentence and a half. You don't have to answer any. Carry on. <laughs> okay, great. So anyway, volunteering is good for you. We'll start. We'll see. Stick with that. And then um, there was a study by Howe and colleagues at China Medical University from late last year where they looked specifically in college students at problematic mobile phone use. So this is a big concern, of course, the world over, but especially in China, there's a lot of concern about. How do you find problematic? I'm like mid-sentence, girl. So they have a measure of it um, of basically too many hours a day in lieu of activities of daily living, like self-care, like not showering, not brushing your teeth, not eating enough because you're on your phone um, in lieu of other responsibilities that are important to you, um, you know, schoolwork, work, work, whatever, those kinds of things. Yeah. 
Um, is that fair? Does that sound prom- sound problematic to you? Yeah, but I also like I can't hear this right now. It feels a little personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, young adults with more problematic phone use um, had lower empathy, which predicted altruism. But they found that it was accounted for by more alexithymia. Do you guys know what alexithymia is? No. Oh. It's not having the words to describe your own emotions and how you're feeling. And so Whoa. the relationship between problematic phone use and lower empathy was accounted for by not being able to describe your own emotional processes. Um, and then that led to lower empathy, which also predicted less altruism. Huh. All of which I thought was really interesting because we have a lot of these sort of alarmist conversations as a culture of what what are our little computers in our pockets doing to all of us? And this was the only study I've seen looking at that specifically. It's one sample. It's in China. I don't know how generalizable it is, but it, the, it certainly caught my eye and seemed disturbing and concerning. I didn't know there was a word for that. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um really interesting yeah so altruism and emily and i have taken it down too far Can yeah jody pep it yeah. back up a bit jody's like i'm never coming back on your podcast why did you ask me here yeah. <laughs> I didn't no, this get- is amazing we always say that you guys get way deeper than we ever do on the bloom saloon so. that's very kind but in your head you're like i didn't want to get either of these phds like yeah yeah there's a reason why my life is not your life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so are you, should i bring it into yeah, pop please. culture world please save us save so, us as you always do what i'm gonna talk about is pop culture but it has nothing to do with the book because Great. listeners you can't see this right now but we are on zencaster our video is on except for emily who has turned her video off so our recording goes a little bit smoothly to like conserve some bandwidth i guess and her instead of seeing her face it's kind of this like gradient spacey gradient of like soft pinks and yellows and blues and so we're just hearing you, emily's voice are you gonna insult me right now i'm like what are you what what are you setting up for i'm not, I'm not going to insult you but what it reminds it's just but like i feel like Emily has this very, like, it's like she has this godly voice now, where it's just like it's coming from, like, this cube. And it reminded me of the TV the show. The are inside the computer, Anne. <laughs> I know. I know what TV show you're going to say. I, okay. As we say it. Out of this world. Yes. So Out of This World was this TV show that we really liked. And <laughs> it, it's about a girl who's half alien or half whatever, and she communicates, her dad is an alien. He doesn't live on Earth, so he communicates with her through this cube-like thing, but it's like these colors. It's like a glowing Rubik's Cube that looks uh, like this pastel gradient. Yes. Is that really what you're going to talk about on the episode today? No, I just thought about it right now. <laughs> but, fun fact, guess who voiced her dad in, in the little cube thing? I just looked this up. You'll never guess. I know it's a very famous person, and I knew it when we were children because it was an actor that my mom liked, and now I don't remember. Ooh. Do you want to play this game? No. We'll do three guesses. No, I, I can't remember. <laughs> okay. What if I gave the initials? Okay. B, R. Wait, am I allowed to play because I'm part alien? Yeah. Or is that like cheating? 
No, you can play. <laughs> uh, mustache. Oh, I know. Burt Reynolds. <laughs> yes, Burt Reynolds. Played was the dad's voice, but only voice only, because sometimes the dad did come onto the show in his physical form, and that was not Burt Reynolds. <laughs> and Emily is not Burt Reynolds, just so you guys know. And what pop culture did you notice in <laughs> Dawn and the Big Sleepover? <laughs> well, my main thing is I was going to talk about Dances with Wolves, which I talked about earlier in the show. Okay. <laughs> but I also picked up on some other things. Let's see. Fraggle. A Fraggle was mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. That's very exciting. Jody, you're a Bing Henson fan too. Yeah. 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 So it was, let's see, Boober, Boober Fraggle. Mm-hmm. So I looked him up. His description on the Muppet wiki is Boober Fraggle is one of the five main Fraggles in Fraggle Rock. He has bluish green skin and fur, red hair, and no visible eyes. He usually wears a brown cap and scarf. But unlike other Fraggles, Boober does not like fun and games (laughs) and spends most of his time worrying about doom and disease. Poor Boober. (laughs) I know. But I feel it's interesting that the writer, what was his name? Peter. Peter picked this Fraggle to reference. Why? The sad Fraggle. Well, he had to because it sounds like Goober. Yeah. I don't Uh, think there was a choice. (laughs) It's on on, on, on theme for Goober Mansfield. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you, has Boober Mansfield been mentioned in any other book so far? This is his first time. Mm-hmm. Hi. Jody, I feel like you have some things to say about Goober Mansfield. <laughs> Go for it. Well, Goober really piqued my interest. Um, the dinosaur theme was just so unexpected. Um, I loved picturing this whole scene. And then I started to think about Claudia's outfit earlier in the book where she dressed like Pebbles, Pebbles yes. from the Flintstone. Flintstone, yeah. So she is like rubble. Cave, yeah. Pebbles rubble. Wait, no, no. Pebbles Flintstone, Flintstone. Bam Bam rubble. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. We got it. We got <laughs> Jeez. it. Jeez. <laughs> but you know, so we're obviously we're bringing back this Flintstone caveman dinosaur thing. Then we've you know got um, Goober doing his dinosaur rap. Do you remember when he rapped? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is like and- a fourteen-year-old vaudevillian performer who knows about dinosaurs and raps is that correct yeah and he is like the star of all the high school plays <laughs> this is esme's high school boyfriend by the way. i wish oh. yeah like i was just gonna say she wishes <laughs> high school boyfriend like current boyfriend <laughs> yeah for sure so i ha- i was thinking of his rap I was like, what would he be? What's his rap? Jody, did you write his rap? Well, I didn't write it, but I figured out what it is. Okay. Remember, open the door, get on the floor. Everybody do the dinosaur. Oh, Oh, my God. Like like a boom. Okay. So it was that. Maybe he made up some other lyrics to that. And Walk the Dinosaur. Yeah. Walk Mm -hmm. the Dinosaur by, um, oh, like, We Not We or what? Was Not Was. Was Not Mm -hmm. Was. And then that got the wheel spinning, like, okay, late 80s, late 80s, early 90s, what's going on with dinosaurs? And it just all kept flooding back. Mm-hmm. Had the dinosaur sitcom. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a weird one. Very weird. Um, also, very Henson. weird. also Henson. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Land Before Time. Wait, is that Time? the one where not there's the like baby. a... That's not, not the one with no, the baby? Not the mama. Yeah, not the mama. Not yeah. the mama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wait. Is that what you're going to say, um, Emily? 
No, I'm just trying to figure out which one that was. Like, is it the one, the show where they're like, it's not quite animated, but they're like a fake. Yeah. They're like they're costumes. It's giant Muppets. Yeah. It's like giant costumes. But there's one that's like always in the high chair, right? Yeah. 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 I think I actually saw this. Yeah. Yeah. Jody, I have never seen or heard of anything that Anna and Asby ever talk about. So I'm just like, wait, what's going on right now? We're crossing over. Yes. I think you guys are punking me. I don't believe it. It's real. This might have been a good transitional one for y'all because I think we were like aging out of TGIF at that point and you Mm. were probably just coming into it. Mm -hmm. So the bridge. Okay. Okay. Carry on. Um, I've seen something. Wow. It was on from 91 to 94. How did it last four seasons, you guys? No idea. Didn't the like the last episode of that show was like really dark, I feel like did they get hit by a meteor? Something like that. Oh my gosh, Jessica Walter was one of the voices. Wow. Lucille Bluth? That's amazing. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. (laughs) Um, Oh, this sorry, the series end with a local anchor man. And a shot of the Sinclair home being covered in snow. Oh, like an ice age is coming? Yeah. Oh, my God. So Dark. sad. Um, Emily, you saw Lamb Before Time, right? Yes, but um, it was very traumatizing for me. I did not watch it yeah. as often as I watch other childhood movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like a one and done type of movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was all of the same era. So I think there was like a, you know, definitely a dinosaur fetish. Mm-hmm. Late 80s, early 90s. So this book is the sure. perfect crossover of Native American trend and dinosaur trend. I have exactly. a, I have a theory. Exactly. Do you think that's like the tail end of the Cold War? We've just um, like assuaged fears about like the nuclear winter. And we're like, oh, we're, we've narrowly escaped this like complete planetary disaster where we'll be wiped out and civil like a new civilization will emerge therefore the dinosaurs are like interesting again yes (laughs) sure yes um i gotta go bye (laughs) (laughs) amazing (laughs) sorry carry on um besides that not there's like not too much (laughs) other notable uh pop culture stuff in here there was some mentions of Claudia's candy. Yeah. What'd she have this time? Well, it was mentioned that she has things such as ring dings, Twinkies, and Snickers. Dawn says that. But in real Babysitter's Club time, she has dark chocolate caramels and pretzels. Mm. Not bad. Mm, those are mm. those are new. Dark chocolate caramels. Mm-hmm. Like maybe a caramello, mm-hmm. maybe. Wow. You like a caramello, Jody? Yes. I like a Rolo. <laughs> mm-hmm. As we likes to roll it. I do like a Rolo. They're very good. Caramel like old man little, candy. Caramel can be a little messy. Rolo. Like a Werther's? A Werther's I, d- I love a Werther's. I do. Oh, wait. Do you know I what don't Werther's know what a originals is. are? What? Yes, I know what Sorry. Werther's originals are. But you don't know what a I caramel is. I have grandparents. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> my mother was Ouch. not giving you Werther's originals. Let's be clear. <laughs> Okay, but my grandfather, unrelated to you, was he always had yeah, them in his pocket. Oh, Grandpa adorable. Pete, adorable. yeah, he always cute. used oh, wait, to get the lollipops. I don't know what a caramello is, but Grandpa Pete always used to get the lollipops from the Seas Candy Store. The one that I liked, mm-hmm. which was the dark chocolate one, and the caramel one, which is the one my sister liked. And then he would pretend to forget which one we liked and give the wrong one to each of us. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was a great bit. Yeah, it's a great bit. 
Uh, I feel like those seized lollipops as we, you guys have had those seized lollipops, right? Of course. Okay. I just told you. Do you a story find about that they them. make you they make you drool a little bit? <laughs> yes. Because they're like a square instead of a circle, so you can't really get a good suction around the yeah. you know, yeah. Stick. <laughs> that is so true. A circle. Like a cube and a sphere. <laughs> a cube and a sphere, sorry. I'm just picturing a square, like a t- one. <laughs> Like a two-dimensional square lollipop. Sorry. It's like, ow. Throw <laughs> yourself on the corners. <laughs> All right, Emily, I'm going to send you a case of caramellos right no, away. Oh, stop. They're good. They're good. <laughs> she says she doesn't like caramel, which is like horrifying. What? I don't like caramel. No. It's too sweet. It's just burnt sugar. Yeah. What part of that doesn't sound good? Okay, fine. Uh, tallies. Got a lot of tallies in this one. Dawn, Dawn's up there with Marianne, so she mentions that she likes health food. Christy's one bossy, one sophisticated, two shy, one sensitive, one baby, and one almond-shaped eyes. Almost wasn't going to show up because of the cultural sensitivity in this book, but then it did. And then while the all the Indian LOL. stuff is better, um, we still have a couple problems in this book. So they love talking about gypsies. It's just like the parent trap. I feel like Anna Martin learned that from... Both parent traps talk about gypsies, and so does this book. Um, and then I didn't love, they were all getting excited at one point or get, having a giggle fit. Where is it? And laughing about something that happened at school. Yeah, they were just having a giggle fit at, um, before the meeting started. And then Dawn mentions that Christy was getting ready to commit them. Look, Christy looked like she was ready to commit us meaning send them mm. to a asylum of some kind because they must be crazy because they're laughing so hard. So it was a subtle one, but I didn't, didn't love it in terms of yeah. mental health awareness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, much aside from the um, white savior stuff, much better with uh, American Indians. LOL, aside from the white savior stuff. <laughs> that um, was a joke. Thank you. <laughs> okay, what was everyone's favorite weird line? I okay. I know I made this my one sentence summary, but we haven't talked about it yet. Uh, on page seventy, I wrote it down too. Top of chapter eight. I'm furious. Page page seventy. There's a parenthetical where uh, Adam and Byron have set up a free throw contest at this, you know, carnival or whatever. Carnival. And then in the parenthetical, Don says it cost a quarter to try, so I don't know why they called it quote free throw. All I know is when I asked them, they rolled their eyes as if I were really stupid. First of mm-hmm. all, you are stupid. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why does she not know what a free throw is? I'm so know. confused. I'm, I'm probably the least athletic person you know, and I know what a free throw I is. Know. And I know. And I think I did when I was 13. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's not yeah. a great weird line for an episode title, but I just, no. I would be remiss if I did not flag it again. Yeah. For us to yeah. rage mm-hmm. over. Fair enough. Do you have an episode mm-hmm. one or you just needed to rage over that one again? I'll get back to you. How about you, Jody? What was your favorite? Well, I had two. One that I think would work better as an episode title. Mm-hmm. So that one is when Dawn's referring to her poor mother and says, she's not Julia Child. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. She's so rude about her mom all the time. <laughs> yeah. like- and I just love the fact that like whoever the ghostwriter was thought that uh, children reading this book would know who Julia Child is because I yeah. Yeah, definitely didn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
They were just curling um, up with the French chef right after they finished reading their BSC book. Yeah. Oh. And then the other one that I took note of is when Adam says, uh, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. But it really annoyed me because he didn't say that I'm rubber. I'm rubber your glue. Your glue. Part mm-hmm. before it. Yes. He skipped yeah. the, like the setup to that comeback. <laughs> it's incomplete. It bothers me so much. <laughs> Yeah, that is weird. Why couldn't they have just added? Yeah, that? yeah I think it's also hard. out of character for the triplets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I had also one that wouldn't work and one that would that I just appreciated when Dawn introduces Logan. She says Marianne broke up with him, but he's still alive. Oh, I have that one. <laughs> I have that. Which I, really I, like. I will accept that as a title if it's only just the clause, but he's still alive. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. And I literally just, yeah, I just have he's still alive. That's it. <laughs> and then I also really liked, um, we didn't talk about this yet, but I loved that Ms. Besser is not a villain and comes back around. So she's the teacher that Jeff is having a really hard time with when he's like mm-hmm. clinically depressed and still in Stony Brook before he moves back home with his dad. And um, so she was in the position of having to call Mrs. Schaefer all the time and report his like violent behavior in class. And so I like that she came around and that she was like really warm to Dawn right away. But when Dawn's talking with her, she says cheerfully, you must be Dawn. You look just like your brother. And Dawn says, anyway, she doesn't agree. But she says, I nodded and said, thanks or something else meaningless, which I really likes oh, or something else meaningless because I feel like that's how teens especially like view a lot of their conversations <laughs> with adults like I'm just going to perform yeah. the half of the conversation that you're expecting me to perform and I'm going to move along right. and I we don't usually see that edge from the babysitters and I was like yeah I mean it is meaningless yeah they're gone there she's just filling yeah. the air okay I will <laughs> say thematically speaking or something else meaningless is a really good like encapsulation of our discussion of like philanthropy. Yeah, that's true. This is true. Did you have another and one? Did you have something else? He's still alive. Oh yeah, I had. He's still alive, and I also wrote down overboiled broccoli <laughs> when she like walks into I think the cafeteria at the elementary school. The but it just made me think like like all her small references have to be health food. It can't be like, ew, it smells like feet. Or like, ew, it stinks in here. She's like, hmm, hang on. Oh, yes. Overboiled broccoli. Yes, I recognize that smell. That's a lot of good ones for this episode, actually. Mm-hmm. I think overboiled oh, broccoli is also a little symbol- symbolic of this whole endeavor. <laughs> hmm I agree. Very true. I, I kind of like that, frankly, but I'm, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. Jody, what's your favorite? I like overboiled broccoli, 100%. It's uh, just vague enough to be left open to interpretation. Perfect. Right? Go with it. And we, and we all know what that smell is. Yep. Not wrong. Exactly. Yes, well, California. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, now we move on to the pizza toast. What shall we pizza toast to? There's so many things. So many things. This is our first, I don't think we should pizza toast to this, but this is our first Alan Gray appearance in like 20 books. Mm-hmm. Like they set him up as like the worst, most annoying kid forever. And then he like disappears. So I was glad to see him come back around. Missed Alan. So his uh, yellow M&M's yeah. uh, in the eyes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. a mood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. still do it sometimes. Alan Gray's <laughs> can't help it. M&M eyes. 
his little yeah. orphan Annie shtick. Yeah. Also a reference for people that are 75 in 1991, but <laughs> it's okay. Um, Emily, have you seen Annie before? Uh, it, yes, I have. Okay. Okay. Phew. Oh my God. I know. I thought maybe she was waiting for the Lindsay Lohan version or something. <laughs> I oh, would... Lindsay Lohan is Miss Hannigan? Can you imagine? Oh, oh that would be that'd really be good, good, actually. Yeah, so great. good. All right, I would watch that right now, and I would watch all of you watch it and be like, wow, that's a perfect film. But then you're like, mm, I don't know. The original, I think, is my favorite. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I have a suggestion. Yeah. Um, oh, thank God. To... <laughs> to Harry and Sandy Colt for their help with the Zuni culture. Did you get that oh, uh, yeah. acknowledgement in the beginning? I did okay. a little bit of research. Yeah. I don't know if we have time for this, but I yeah. can yes. tell you all about them. Oh, God, yes. Do it. <laughs> so I did some digging and I found some info. He lives in Augusta, Maine and is uh, at the Maine Dartmouth Family Medicine Residency. And he lives with his partner, Sandy, and various horses, chickens, rabbits, and dogs. He spent four years with the Indian Health Service in Zuni, New Mexico. So he's a white guy from the East Coast who spent four years in Zuni. He is not Zuni. Don't know that he was the best person to tap for. Okay. Uh, I will say that I looked at the Goodreads review of this book and this girl <gasps> Did wrote, you see like, Lisa's review? Is that is she the angry one? Yes. <laughs> okay. Who went off on like... She was saying how uh, Sandy and who was what's the other person's name? Harry. The Colts. Harry. Harry. That she was like, I don't know who these people are, but they're not experts. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was oh. like, she oh. said, um, she said, my mom tapped all her resources at the schools and the eight Northern Pueblo meetings, but we never learned their identities. When I was in my early 20s, I briefly dated a man from Zuni and asked him if he knew Harry and Sandy Colt. Neither he or his father had ever heard of them, despite having grown up in Zuni. His father said those names were either made up or Harry and Sandy Colt were white hippie anthropologists who wrote a master's thesis on the Zuni people. I kick myself for I kick myself to this day for not writing an angry letter to Anna Martin about this book. Oh my god! Wow. Okay, That's wait. So, how do we how do we like reframe that into a pizza toast? <laughs> well, maybe toast. Lisa on Goodreads. Yes. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yes. Let's do that. Great. <laughs> yes. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. Joy. Okay. Pizza toast to Lisa from Goodreads. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Lisa from Goodreads. Yeah. Lisa from Goodreads. <laughs> pizza toast to you. Okay. Before I go, Jody, do you have, want to tell all of our listeners out there where they can find you on Instagram, et cetera? Yes, we are the Bloom Saloon. We're on, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much everywhere these days. Um, we are very active on Facebook. Just find us, the Bloom Saloon, on Facebook. And we've got, we call it our private and free group. You can join our group and chat with other Bloom heads about the books. It's really fun. Um, we are on Instagram at the Bloom Saloon Podcast. And we say sometimes Twitter because we're technically on Twitter, but we, um, we haven't really figured it out yet. Yeah, that's why we didn't. Twitter we didn't just even isn't try. really our yeah. place, but we're there. And that's it. Awesome! Thank okay, you so, so much, everyone. Should go check out Bloom Saloon. Yeah, for sure. 
Oh, can I just say we're in between books. We just finished a Beverly Cleary book because we alternate the Judy books with non-Judy books. So we just finished mm-hmm. The Luckiest Girl by Beverly Cleary. Our next book is yet to be announced, but as a teaser, we're in it's uh it's a toss-up between um Super Fudge, mm. Iggy's House, and Smart mm-hmm. Women. Mm. Awesome. All all awesome choices. Gonna be mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. I have a soft yeah. spot for Iggy's house. Amazing. Well, it was super fun to have you. Thanks so much. So for nice, Jody. Thank you. Yeah. So fun. I loved it. Thank you. This episode of Stuck at Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friend the girl could ask for.